Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. chapter 9. It's a long one. It, it was a 50-verse chapter. So buckle in, get ready, heat up your pen tip, and we'll dig in. Uh, the context for Mark chapter 9, because with Mark, it's all context. There's this streaming flow of thought, like Peter's up in front of the people and preaching the word. And it come, it reads like you're listening to Peter preach. So the first word of our chapter is and, which means we have to know what we're, we're in connection to. Jesus has just told them about his death and resurrection. And Mark really makes a point multiple times. Jesus told them about the crucifixion before it happened. They just didn't have the ears to hear it. And a lot of this in the last couple chapters his, has been about they get part of it, but they don't get all of it. They've been called, Jesus said, follow me, and they all said yes. So if we're taking this for application, these are all believers. They're all trying to follow Jesus. But there's parts of following Jesus they've figured out, and there's parts of it they haven't. In the last chapter, Peter correctly names Jesus as Christ, but he incorrectly gets upset about this whole going to the cross thing. So he goes from Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit, God told you that. The only way you know that is God told you, to saying, get behind me, Satan, in like a blink. And that should tell us something as believers, that in any given sentence out of our mouth, we're either speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit or we're speaking in the flesh. And it's a battle that we have. And any believer that's been a believer for any amount of time understands the battle. There's the me that God has made me to be that I'm trying to get to be more like, the me that looks like Jesus, and then there's the me that is just the scummy, fleshy, you know, meat bag that walks around on this planet and, and is a mess. Right? So we're either a hot mess or we're, you know, cool as a cucumber, one of the two. Jesus teaches them that to follow Christ is to die to yourself. This is the hardest thing in the world because everything in us wants to cling to who we are and to say, everything I get worried about, everything I get angry about, everything that stirs me up, to just give that to Jesus, put it on the altar, and kill it. That's not easy to do. And so he's talking to veteran believers to this point where, I mean, honestly, you can be in those moments and you're honestly just praying, Lord, just take this away. Take it off my plate. It's too much for me. I'm overwhelmed. You got the image of the boat with the storm. It's happened twice that we're overwhelmed and, and he's trying to teach them you have to pray. And we pick up on those themes in chapter 9. And for starters, he alternates between these amazing miracles and then these lessons they have to learn. So this is probably the most amazing miracle that he shows the disciples, the transfiguration. So it's this kind of interesting moment. So verse 1, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present in power. You're going to see what the church looks like. You're going to see what the church looks like in its full regalia. And I'm going to show it to you. So this idea of this high calling for our life, that there's an upside to it, right? There's struggle. You have to die to yourself right in the last few verses in chapter 8. But then he flips it. There's also glory. Because if the whole deal of Christianity was die to yourself and suffer, 
there wouldn't be a lot of Christians on the planet. But God offers something in exchange. If you die to yourself and suffer for my name, you will get to taste the kingdom. And you'll get a little bit of what that's all about. So the reason Peter didn't like Jesus' prediction of the cross, because he wanted empire. He wanted the kingdom to come. Can you um, uh, take care of the dog's bone? Give him something non-noisy to chew. Sorry, podcasters. I know they can't hear the bone chewing on the other side of this microphone, but I can. So, assuredly, the word there, I thought this was interesting. Chapter 9 starts with the word amen in the Greek. So the word assuredly at the beginning of a sentence or a thought is amen, and it means the same thing that amen does at the end. It means firm, truthfully, verily, so be it. It's from the Hebrew word aman, and it transfers right into the Greek. It means to believe it or be sure of something. So when Jesus starts a sentence with amen, he's really giving something to his disciples to say, be sure of this thing. I will, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Some people believe that this happens at Pentecost. Some people believe it happens with the church. Some people believe it happens in a few verses in the transfiguration. So the kingdom of God arrives in power. The only person to not see this, which is why he says some of you, Judas clearly doesn't see any of these three things, whichever one we're talking about. Um, So either way, after six days, so time has passed, they're about to see something that's amazingly powerful. Their eyes are going to totally be revealed. And I think this helps when you're struggling with the power of Jesus for God to reveal for a moment what God's power looks like. This is why it's good to go to places like Glacier National Park and see the majesty of God's creation and feel the power of what God has done. Um, And I think sometimes why you have more belief in country towns than you do in city towns is that the closer you are to some of the things God's done, the more you get to see what God has done. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such that no launderer on earth can whiten them. (laughs) That's a Peter comment. Only in the Gospel of Peter do you get laundry tips. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there's no reason that he picks Peter, James, and John that we're given in the Bible. A lot of people assume it's because those three were kind of the inner circle with Jesus. However, I read one commentary that gave another perspective that Based on what we've seen from Peter so far, those three maybe were the weakest in their faith. And they needed to see something to keep going forward. And Peter, again, just last chapter, got into this thing where he didn't didn't like the idea of the cross. So Jesus is like, for you to get the idea of the cross, you need to see who I am. That the cross isn't going to be more powerful than that. So it could be that. It could be that they're, they're favorites, that they're close to Jesus. John's clearly the disciple that Jesus loved, or at least he writes that of himself. Um, and maybe that love is, you know, we see other passages where it says those who have been forgiven much um, love much. And maybe the way John felt is he knew how far he had to come to get on board as being a disciple. Um, so the high mountain here is likely Mount Hermon, based on where they're at. Um, it's in 827, it says they're in Caesarea Philippi. The north, north, the closest high place there is Mount Hermon. Um, and then in verse 30, just to skim through the chapter, they go through Galilee, and then in verse 33, notice they come to Capernaum. So that gives us a little geography or a map. The direction they come when they come off this mountaintop after Jesus told them he's going to die on a cross, they go in a singular direction towards Jerusalem. 
So everything is downhill from here until you get to the Jerusalem, which is, they call it a, they exaggerate in Israel. They call it a mountain. It's not a mountain like what we think a mountain is. It's a big hill. Um, and you can see the surrounding area from the hill. It's like being in North Dakota when they say um, that there's a mountain. It's really just a rise, but you can see for miles and miles and miles. He was transfigured. In the Greek, it's metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis. It is the same being, but completely different. And I, to me, this is an amazing thing because it gives us an image of what we're going for. This isn't just about Jesus transfiguring. It's showing humanity that transfiguration is possible. And we're promised when we get to heaven new bodies, new, new entities to walk around in or new flesh, so to speak. Mark tries to explain it with the best language he can come up with. And that is that it was very bright. It was hard to see. The idea of the light here is that it's not a light that comes from without. His clothes became shining. He's describing the clothes as the light source. So it's like a bad 70s sci-fi flick, right? The light, the clothes themselves are emanating light from the inside outward is the language that's used there. The miracle here, I don't think is the shining light. The miracle here is that they didn't see the shining light beforehand. The majesty of God is the natural state of Jesus. Him incarnating and becoming something less in their eyes, that's the miracle. So for a brief second, Jesus removes the miracle and Peter, James, and John can see who he actually is. He's the son of God, nothing short of it. So when he says, I'm going to go die on a cross, have faith in that. He's not so weak, he can't handle your problems. Romans 8.23 and 2 Corinthians 5.4 both mention that we're going to have bodies that don't decay, bodies without sin, bodies that are pure. And I got to tell you, like, the older you get, the more you realize your body isn't going to last forever. Like, everything starts falling apart. All the older folks in the room are like, yeah, we get it. <laughs> I, and I think that's a reminder because you get, as you get older, you got less and less time on the earth. And God's trying to say, you don't get to walk around forever. This is a testing ground. And those, I think that decaying flesh is part of our reminder that we got to get our heart right with God. You're running out of time. It's easier when you're 20 and you feel like you'll live forever, but at some point you feel your mortality. You're like, I'm not going to be here forever. There's an end game here. And I want to read you some of these verses because when you think of Jesus just emanating light and, sh and showing this majesty, and there's two people next to him, right? And, the, and they, they all have this kind of unearthly form, supernatural form that Peter, James, and John are taking in. First of all, imagine how their jaws would drop. Like, you don't expect to see that. But 2 Corinthians 5.4, while we live in these earthly bodies, that's Greek for flesh sacks, we groan and sigh, like, ugh, and I get up, my knees actually crack now every time I move them. It's crazy. But, that, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. We want to be transformed. I don't want to just, I'm not like fatalist. I don't want to end because I got a creaky body. I just want my new body. You know, and that's part of what we're doing. When Jesus says, die to yourself so that you can save yourself, the salvation is what we're going for. It's not just kind of this throwing up your hands kind of thing. It's just definitely a purposeful decision. And again, the idea of no launderer on earth. Peter's making the claim through Mark, this is a supernatural thing that they saw. Their eyes were opened. Uh, and then in verse 4, Elijah and Moses. Those are two people in the Bible. We can put Enoch to the side for now. But 
Moses and Elijah were caught up. In Deuteronomy 34, 6, the Lord buried him in the body near Peor, Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day, no one knows the exact place. God took Moses. There's no record of him being caught up in a whirlwind like Elijah, but God buried him is what the Bible says. Nobody knows where Moses' body was. They couldn't make a temple out of Moses' body. 2 Kings 2.11, it came to pass, and they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them asunder, and Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. So aside from Enoch, these two have been taken by God. They didn't die. The curse of humanity is death. So when God just excuses that for three people, that they're pretty special people. And Jesus, and I think part of what God likes, he doesn't want people he dearly loves to have to suffer those kinds of things. So death is rotten. He knows it. And for some people, he has spared that experience. And it came to pass that they um, are walking and they're talking. It says they're, they're hanging out and talking with one another. What are they talking about? When Moses and Jesus and Elijah get together for a conversation, what's the conversation? And I wonder if some degree, even Moses and Elijah were seeing God's plan unravel. And I imagine if I'm using my imagination, listening in on this conversation, I think they're talking about the cross. Because Elijah, you know, prophesied some of these things. Moses prophesied some of these things. And Jesus is saying, this is what I'm going to do with enthusiasm and excitement. And instead of going, oh, you don't need to go to the cross, Moses and Elijah are probably like, yes, Lord, this is great. This is better than we imagined. And Peter gets to hear this conversation. That's how he should have reacted. So they're sitting there and chatting. You know, they're, um, Luke says that they're talking about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, which is where I kind of get that imagination from. If you want to check Luke 9.31, he gives that little tidbit at the transfiguration. And then I love this part because it, again, I think Mark is showing the humanity of Peter because as an encouragement to us as believers, even Peter didn't get it. And, there, and that's part of growing up in the faith that we can have more grace and mercy with ourselves and we can have more grace and mercy with other people. Then Peter answered, verse 5, and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Yeah, you think? It's, well, this is a good place to be. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You're up on a mountaintop. Let's make tents so you guys don't have to be in the sunlight, right? And the tabernacle is to get out to make some shade. So let's make a little shady spot you guys can hang out in. This is probably the dumbest thing anyone could say. The wisest thing here would just be to hold your tongue and enjoy what God's giving you. But Peter can't do that. He's got to jump in with something. And for lack of anything bright to say, he wants to make tents for supernaturally revealed people. Uh, verse 6, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And again, James and John know enough to hold their tongue and just enjoy it. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And in other words, God provided a tabernacle, right? A cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is crazy. This is better than shining clothing saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. This is, reminds me of like when, when Elijah so, shows his servant that there's armies of God and he gets this quick revelation of seeing the armies or when the angels are in the treetops 
You know, you just get these moments where believers get these looks to see the world the way God sees it for just a moment. And I think this is a great prayer. Lord, help me to see the world the way you see it for just a moment. Because I can go for 20 years on that vision, on that image. It's beautiful. So the idea that... um, that God comes in this cloud, right? It's a, it, it's a, in the Greek, it's nephile, right? It's a presence. It's used in 1 Corinthians 10.1 to describe the cloud over the tabernacle. So this is important because throughout the Old Testament, there's a cloud over the tabernacle, which was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the un, you couldn't make a statue to represent God, which is why golden calves are not supposed to be in the temple. All God gave humanity was a cloud. So we couldn't build images and idols because God knows that we tend to worship the thing and not the being. So the Shekinah glory is here with the 1 Corinthians reference. We can connect this word to that Shekinah glory. The presence of God shows up with Jesus on the mount and there is a spirit that's revealing things to them, which we've seen before. God said, the only way you know I'm the Christ is because the spirit of God has told you that. So you really have this moment where they see the triune God in a, in, a, in a snapshot, and it changes them forever. Honestly, Peter's journey looks quite different. When the Shekinah glory comes up, that makes this place a holy place. By Leviticus 16, this same cloud overshadowed Mary in Luke 1.35 at the birth of Jesus. In Acts 1.9, the same cloud shows up over the people of God as the Shekinah glory when they receive Jesus at the Pentecost. So this cloud has been around. It'll be, it'll be around in their future. Um, and it is the, uh, uh, the same cloud that gets referenced in Revelation. When God manifests the mighty power of God, this cloud shields humanity from the full force of it. So it gives us some shelter. And we see that again through the journeys of Moses and whatnot. When, God, when Jesus returns, Luke 21, he says he will return on this cloud. So he and the cloud become one. God's words here. This is a big deal. He spoke at the baptism. This is my beloved son. And he speaks here. This is my beloved son. And he gives Peter exactly what he needs to hear after he just got chastised and called Satan. All right. Listen to what God says. You don't have to come up with tent ideas. Just listen to what he says. And I honestly think this, I, this is exactly what Peter needed. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter reports that he could still remember hearing that voice. This voice rings in his ears for the rest of his life. He never forgets the two words, hear him. Just hear what Jesus has to say. And so many people, they don't, they want to argue about Jesus. They want to debate his historicity, but they just hear what he says. Let it sink in. Verse nine, now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the son of man had risen from the dead. So again, that message, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. So they kept his word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. They still don't get that part. We look at it in retrospect. They couldn't understand how that being they just saw could die and rise again. So, but Peter's not arguing with them about it anymore. That's the plan, Peter. Let's stick to the plan. Now they see that glory. The glory is white and pure. The glory is with the past saints. I like this because my mom died when I was pretty young. 
I get to hang out with my mom. The, the glory is fellowship and talking. They're just hanging out talking. Isn't it amazing how people pursue things in life that they think will give them joy, but what really gives joy is hanging out on New Year's Eve and playing games with your friends. The, the simple things give us joy. It's not the big complex things. It's not the fireworks. They're just hanging out talking. They could be with shiny clothes doing a dance or something, but they're not. They're just hanging out and talking in their shining clothes. And then four, the glory is overshadowed with God's presence and its power. Heaven is pure. It's with our, the other saints. It's in fellowship. And it's overshadowed by God's presence and power. Just from this passage alone, we get a glimpse of what heaven's all about. And I think that's the beauty of church. God gives us a little ability of once a week to kind of see what that might look like. And, I, and it's such a small thing, right? It's such a little thing. But God looks at that and you see it through the eyes of the spirit and you realize that's where healing happens. That's where fellowship happens. That's where worship happens. That's where we actually hear God's word, which is the command here. Hear me or hear him. Wonderful. Don't see it according to the flesh. See it according to the spirit. Jesus never asks his disciples to take blind faith. He shows them, then he commands them. And I think this is another thing that should take a weight off of our shoulders. If God hasn't shown us what to do, God isn't holding us obliged to do something we came up with. Just do what he's asked you to do and faithfully walk in the steps that he set before you. This is what Peter is having a tough time figuring out. He wants to build tents and he was never asked to build tents. He was just asked to listen and hear the words of God wash over his spirit until he's transformed into something new and he's born again in the spirit. Wonderful stuff. Verse 11. And they asked him, saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah can come first? This is a way better question than they've been asking him. And then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah's coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it was written of him. Now this is complex. Suddenly their questions have changed into theological questions. This is good. This is a good thing. They're asking the right thing. They're asking for the word of God says this, but it appears like this is happening. And they're trying to reconcile the difference between what they read in the scriptures and what the experience of their life is. This is the question of a mature believer. They're not debating whether or not Jesus is God anymore. They're debating how do we apply what we read in the word. Way better question. He teaches how to understand prophecy in this passage. He gives all of us as Christians a particular process by which we can understand any prophecy in the Bible. This is great for our people studying Daniel right now, right? And he opens the idea, which does not come from the Old Testament. This is a new teaching of Jesus, that some prophecies can happen and then happen again that there's an immediate fulfillment and then there's a later fulfillment. If it appears that you're the Christ, but if you're the Christ, the Bible says Elijah should come first. That's the question. So, okay, we believe you're the Christ, but where's Elijah? We missed this. So this comes from Malachi um, 4, verse 5. It says, behold, it's a really simple prophecy. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's a pretty direct prophecy. Elijah comes first, and there's a sequencing there. So this is written after the exile. So Elijah is, is not 
with them anymore. And it says Elijah will return, not dead, but alive. That's true. And that's very clear thing. The passage is clearly talking about God coming to the earth. If you look at Malachi, this is a messianic passage. It's clearly talking about this great day of God, when God's going to make everything right and bring justice. Here's where they get confused. That same chapter in Malachi also uses phrase like trample the wicked, right? That's what God's going to do when he's coming back. And here's another one, burn them up is another thing God's going to do. So if you struggle with the idea of hell, Malachi chapter four is not your chapter. So he's going to trample wicked people. He's going to burn them up and they don't see Messiah doing that. So these are legitimate questions that they have for him. How, where's Elijah? Because they're referencing a chapter that talks about the dreadful day of the Lord. Jesus isn't dreadful. He's shining with, you know, tied, cleaned whites. This doesn't feel dreadful. This feels glorious. This feels like grace and love. This doesn't feel like judgment and justice. So what's going on here? So what Jesus presents to them is, Elijah, look at verse 12 really careful. Indeed, Elijah is coming. That's in the future tense. Elijah's coming. So his first answer to them is true. Elijah is coming. Revelation 11 says there's two witnesses that'll come before the Messiah shows up. And this is where people argue one of those two witnesses is likely Elijah because it gets predicted again there. Jesus gives them some guidance on additional scriptures saying Messiah also had to suffer. So in answer to their question, he says, indeed, Elijah is coming. And then he says how it is written. He's referencing another passage. So this is great teaching. I love this. Isaiah 53.3, another chapter that's tough to read. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So Jesus, in answer to this question, we, you, you look like Messiah, but there's no Elijah. There's no dreadful day. There's no trampling of the wicked. We don't get it. This doesn't look like what we thought it should look like. This is why Peter had a problem with Jesus going to the cross. And Jesus' answer is, what about Isaiah 53? Have you read that? Because that says I'm going to be, people are going to hide their face. People are going to be embarrassed to acknowledge me. He's talking to Peter when he says this. And Peter's going to fulfill this prophecy. So he's like, how do these two prophecies match? How do they work together? And, the, and what they, how can both of these things be so is the response Jesus gives him. Elijah is going to come. But what about the Messiah suffering? How does that look? He must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. How does that happen if I'm trampling the wicked? and bringing justice to the Lamb. Verse 13, he then gives them a third thought, but I say to you, so he's introducing a new teaching, that Elijah has also come, past tense. So there's an also there. This is a new idea. Prophecy doesn't have necessarily one way to look at it. It can be, God can work in layers. So there is, it is true that he will come, and it is also true he has come. Because maybe they're reading prophecy all wrong. Maybe Messiah doesn't come once. Maybe Messiah comes twice. And if Messiah comes twice, then you can reconcile that the first time it's going to look like this, and the second time it's going to look like this, making all the prophecies true. So Jesus is really giving them some meaty teachings here. Um, Elijah also coming means that John the Baptist, if you can believe it, um, is a picture of Elijah or had the spirit of Elijah. And he came in the wilderness, he dressed like him, he hung out in the same territory, he preached repentance, he got rejected by the government officials of the day. You look at John the Baptist and Elijah, they look a lot alike. 
But then I think part of this too, when they, when he says that he has come and he looks at it, Elijah is a picture of John the Baptist. Then Elisha is a really strong picture of Jesus. And everybody keeps comparing Jesus to Elijah because they think he should come first. So if Jesus is Elijah, then they're waiting for Messiah still. They don't believe he's Messiah. So when you look at Jesus and you look at Elisha, awesome Bible study we've been doing in the evenings that really you just see the connections and the comparisons. You can see why the disciples are confused and why this is tough. Verse 14 starts with and. The miracles connected to the teaching. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, scribes disputing with them. So Peter, James, John, and Jesus come down off the mountain and they see the other disciples arguing with the scribes and Pharisees. Have you ever walked into a church and seen this? You know, just Christians arguing with each other about how, how this all works. And at the same time, the, the kid's not getting healed. So he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. And when Jewish people dispute in the first century, it's yelling and screaming. Some Jewish cultures today, when they argue, it's still yelling and screaming. It is strong, heartfelt, passionate arguing. So they're yelling at each other. Verse 15, immediately when they saw him, Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him and greeting him. It doesn't say why they were amazed other than just that that's Jesus. And they're all running to Jesus. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? I like how he goes to the scribes and not the disciples here. What are you discussing with them? Also note that in 14, the word used is disputing. But when Jesus asked them, he says discussing. That's grace. He's just bringing it down a notch. You know, he's de-escalating. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So we get a sense of the picture here. This guy comes up. He's got a kid. We would say this is epilepsy. And he says, heal my kid of epilepsy. And the disciples try. They've done outings where they were able to heal people. So they try, they pray in faith, they know that God can heal it, nothing happens, and then an argument breaks out with the scribes and Pharisees. Probably this person brought his son to the scribes too, and they couldn't do anything. Brings him to disciples, they can't do anything, and now the scribes just jump on it. The first mistake these new believers, these Jesus followers make, they just pounce. See, you can't do this, you can't do anything. And, I, and honestly, the scribes present this image of just the enemy. I'm sure they're accusing, they're, you're, you're just as powerless as anything. What's amazing here, the scribes disputing with them, is that they're arguing over something that they couldn't do either. And I just think this is stunning with people that are self-righteous. You're not doing anything to fix this, right? So, okay, we're not perfect, but you're not even trying. You're, you're not even in the right territory. So Jesus comes down, sees an arguing group of people, a demon-possessed kid, a hopeless dad, and a pressing crowd that's just awed at seeing him. This is, and, and a, a, a part of it has to just be exhausted with humanity. So he asked the scribes, they're disputing and discussing. One of the crowd answers them. What's interesting in verse six, he asked the scribes, but the one that answers them is this guy with his son, not one of the scribes. Until you've seen this, when you find self-righteous people that that find that they can't argue with you because you keep quoting the word at them, they get exasperated. And then they say, 
we're not even talking to you anymore. So literally they're talking to the disciples because they feel like they can win that. But when Jesus shows up, they come down and they're like, here you go. And the scribes just ghost him. I'm not even speaking to you anymore. It's horrible how this happens. It's ugly when this happens. But God hates a lying tongue and he hates this kind of hypocrisy. And Jesus teaches how to de-escalate, have mercy in the situation. In one sense, the scribes are refusing to speak with Jesus. In another sense, all they want to do is bicker about how right they are. How sad. How depressing. You can't win an argument when you're that wrong. (laughs) And it's not worth arguing with people that can't accept that they're wrong. So the indignation often turns into this kind of silent treatment. What's interesting is that the son has a mute spirit that doesn't talk either. The demon in the son is just as nefarious as the evil in the scribes. And there's no joy in either one of these. This dad's got to be tortured. Verse 18, I read that, it sounds like epilepsy to me, but Jesus treats it like an unclean spirit and successfully removes it from him. So what looks like a health issue, epilepsy, with the eyes of the spirit, Jesus is the one that actually sees this isn't just a health problem, this is a spiritual problem. So this is interesting. Jesus in verse 25 very clearly treats this as a demon and he addresses it as a demon. So when we look, I think about that for application today and I think this is an interesting nuance to the Christian faith. We can treat everything with the best medical practices that are possibly available and known to humanity but we can't escape the idea that we need to also be praying for things in the spirit. It may just be that our bodies are falling apart and we're all going to die. It could be a spiritual issue that we need to be praying for accordingly. And I think sometimes in the church today, we're so wrapped up in in faith and science and medical practice that we forgot what quacks they were in the 1920s, right? They haven't, they've advanced a sliver from God's perspective. But we think, oh, they know everything about medicine. Well, maybe, but then why do we keep having miracles where people get healed and the doctors don't understand what happened? Because Christians continue to treat it both ways. Best medical available, best spiritual prayer we can possibly offer with our whole heart, mind, and soul. And what a blessing it is for God to see Christians treating that with some balance and nuance. There's Christians that also make the mistake where they they reject all modern medicine. That's ridiculous. Jesus doing the spit in the eye last week, that was a medical practice of the day, right? So just this idea that we don't use common sense and expect God to like bail us out. He'll just say, I gave you a boat, you know, why are you jumping out of it? Stay in the boat. What was the meme that we just saw? Like how many, how many animals did God create that are able to produce milk? And God just watches from heaven going, why are they making almond milk? Like just, I don't even get it. I gave them everything, and they're just doing their own thing, humans. Verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? (sighs) Bring him to me. Like, honestly, this scene, the transfiguration coming off the mountaintop, he comes down into just the worst of humanity, right? The worst of humanity. Everything short of murder is happening down at the bottom of the hill. And he's just like, oh, bring me the guy. I mean, you get a sense that Jesus is wrapping up his three-year ministry, that even God Almighty has a patience that will get exhausted with humanity. And Jesus just got that tone here in verse 19. Then they brought him to him, 
They brought the son to Jesus. And when they saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming in the mouth. Epilepsy doesn't happen on demand, right? So this looks like epilepsy, but it's something spiritual. I think verse 20 is why Jesus treated it as a spiritual issue. Because when brought in the presence of a godly, godly, Holy Spirit-filled Jesus, the thing starts to react. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And as often as has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, please. This is as exhausting for the parents as it is for the kid. Like just everywhere you go, you got to worry about this kid getting into trouble. We all have family members like that, right? Have compassion on us. This is exhausting. It says, but if you can... I think that's a wonderful thing. There's a humility, but if you can do anything, have compassion. It's almost like the dad has accepted that there's probably not a solution to this problem. A mute spirit is relevant in this passage because the Jews believed you had to learn the name of the demon to command them to come out of the person. And Jesus just makes up a name, right? You, clearly that's not the case. Um, Jesus said to him, if you can believe it, all things are possible to him who believes. This is crazy. The thing is, if you can do anything, and Jesus answers by saying, if you can believe. So I love this. Humanity says, Jesus, if you can do it, please do it. And Jesus just says, if you can believe I can do it, I'll do it. It's just, it's a, re it's a relationship that goes two directions. And God insists on that two-directional relationship. He's not our nanny. He won't do everything for us, right? And he's, and he's also not a distant God that doesn't desperately want to do things with us. It's a really interesting thing that the Almighty God is also a relational God. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Do you believe? Now, this gets into like the faith kind of heresy. Like this passes one verse. Well, if you just believe it, you'll receive it. Right. And, and I can see where that argument comes from here because Jesus is taught. But there's a context to when he says this. He's saying it to a dad about a son who's got a spiritual issue, who doesn't quite know if Jesus is the guy who can fix it. The disciples said they could fix it and then they couldn't. So I think in, he's humbly saying, boy, if you can, Jesus, it would be. It would mean the world to me to have a son who I don't have to worry about dying every time I turn my back. That would be a blessing, Lord. Could you help? The idea isn't that every, everything we want, we get. <laughs> but the idea here is there's a need that he's putting on the altar. Jesus, please take care of this because I'm at my wit's end. I can't do it anymore. And that's when Jesus says, exactly. You finally gave up your life and lost it like we just talked about in the last chapter. You finally got to that point. So... What a beautiful prayer. I love this. Verse 24. Immediately the child, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's a desperation to humanity. I get that Jesus is Messiah, but I'm so lost in the flesh, I can't move past myself. So Lord, help, take the piece of me that gets it and work with that. And I love this prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help the parts of me that don't get there. I don't feel it, but I know it, and I want to see it. He didn't get to see Jesus transfigured on the mountain, but what a thing for Peter, James, and John to hear is this is what God's looking for. 
it's not perfection in any means. It's not having everything right. It's not doing everything right. It's that simple idea that you can put it on the altar and give it to God. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, fix the parts of me that are dead. Make them come alive. What a beautiful prayer. He comes to Jesus in hope, not with the idea to build tents. Right? The contrast between Peter and this nameless dad are so stark and so different. We come to God first and then we let God deal with the doubt. So many people don't come to God because of doubt. And it's the wrong way to look at it. Come to God first and let him start working on you over the months and years that you follow him. One of my favorite verses talks about what God wants of us. And, I, and I, it's on the wall upstairs, Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's such a simple request. And so many things in our flesh get in the way of it. And Peter's learning that through the Gospel of Mark. Notice that it starts with what Micah has already seen. What He has shown you. He's shown you what to do and how to do it. The problem isn't whether or not we've been shown, because there it is, Micah 6.8. The problem is ourselves, this fight that we have. This, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, can only be a statement made by somebody with faith. I don't know if I have enough faith. Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah? I do. That's faith. God can work with that and that alone. Unbelievers, this is why the salvation is so beautiful. This is why it's so mighty. Lord, I believe. First step is you don't do anything. There's nothing. There's no works. There's no obligation. You don't, have, you don't have to do cleaning of toilets. You don't have to make the food for church. You don't have to do anything. Just believe in the Lord and come in ready to, ready to hear him, what we just saw in the last passage. That's it. God will then do something in you over time. And the humans get impatient. We want it to happen right now. But what we should be doing right now is just putting it on the altar. Lord, just take it and change me. Make me different. And then track it. Keep a journal and look at your journal a year later and see what's changed. Because God does it so subtly. It's like the feeding of the 5,000. They reach into a bag where they can't see things and they pull out loaves and they just keep pulling out loaves. And at the end of the meal, they realize we got more left over than what we started with. That's how our lives are. You go into that place called faith and you keep pulling out loaves and you just realize I have way more than I started with. What a blessing. Verse 25, when Jesus saw... This isn't just for the dad. Notice that Jesus is looking to show the people his authority and power. He had all of this mess of humanity. He's showing them something. So it's important in verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he, he waited for them so they could see him rebuke the spirit that they were bickering over. And I just, he's like, how long do I have to be with these people? Oh, he's going to keep teaching them. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit. You know, if they couldn't find the deaf and dumb spirit name, that's an adequate name for the spirit. You deaf, dumb spirit. Get out of him. I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. You you get the sense of evil here too. This cried out and convulsing this kid one more time, that spirit's going to do as much damage as it can before it comes out of him. He obeys Jesus, but he, he goes kicking and screaming. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. And this is the thing. This is the same thing with, like, Lazarus and Jesus. I think people in the first century knew what dead was. 
And we see some of these passages and Jesus says, he took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And some people read that and, well, it just looked like he was dead. I, I don't think they were that dumb back then. I think they knew what dead looked like. You, know, you get the gray pallor on the face. I think they understood this. I think God raises him from the dead. That The demon in convulsing him greatly tried to kill him before he took off. And I honestly, this with new believers, you got to keep praying for them even after they accept to follow Jesus. Because Satan will attack with everything they have those first few months. They will bring that person back into the sin that they're technically spiritually freed from. And they will kicking and screaming, Satan's going to, Satan will leave, but he's going to leave kicking and screaming and he's going to try to put as much shame and doubt in that person as possible before he's gone. Simple and easy for Jesus. One sentence, this demon's taken care of. God's that powerful. He's that able. He's that willing to help. And he has the kind of authority he needs to do it. Verse 28. And when he had come out into the house, his disciples asked him privately, so the day's over, they're coming into the house, they're all gathered, just the disciples, and they kind of quietly go like, why could we not cast it out? And this had to be a torturing question for them because they had cast out demons in the past. So why weren't we able to do it this time, but we were able to last time? And he said to them, this kind, of, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So the question, why could we not cast it out, it could be that they had tried and you know, chapter 3, verse 14 had that success, but now they'd tried and they couldn't do it, and the scribes are right there to accuse them of this. Why was it so hard? Note the question, why could we not cast it out? That's a, let's be particular with that question. Does, do we cast out demons? Or does God cast out demons? And I think there's an interesting kind of nuance here that Jesus' answer is prayer and fasting. Put God back in the middle of everything you're doing. So when we move forward on things, it's not if we do things, it's about if God will do things. It's about him, not about us. Prayer and fasting are both exercises at putting God back in the center of our lives. So there's this walk in the faith that has a lot of, when we get into this part of Mark, it's a lot of nuance. They followed Jesus. They listened and learned to the word of God. They learned how to help Jesus by the feeding of the 5,000. And now their weakness to do his will has to be remedied with prayer and fasting. You see the pattern of the faith, the life of the believer there? Follow, listen, learn, help, prayer and fasting. And it keeps going. There's a progression to this passage. Verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. <laughs> like, they're just done questioning God. That's maturity. Like, it's, there's a reverence and fear when you realize, God, you're in the hands of a mighty God, that some things are just the way God said it is, and I don't have to quibble with them. I don't have to argue with the scribes. Jesus said it, I believe it. And, and, the, and I think maturity gets to be a comfortable place. And God has patience with people that want to get into questions, and that's wonderful. But I do think we're seeing growth in the disciples and that they just are learning to hold their tongue a little bit. So before he told them of death, we saw that back in 831. Now he's telling them about death again. That's a bookend, right? And everything in between those two passages were his correcting them so they could handle that news in a more appropriate way. 
So they now, and I think the transfiguration is the highlight in between those two references to the fact that he's going to die and rise again. He's God. And the last time they questioned him about it, remember Peter was rebuked and said, Satan, get behind me. This time there's no rebuke. Just like the two feedings and the two storms. The first time they kind of screw it up. The second time they do it a little better. This feeding, the first time they're not even there. And then the second time they're helping out. And so the, we ha also have these two passages. And the first time Peter gets rebuked. Second time there's no rebuke whatsoever. This is learning to give up your life and let Jesus lead. And I, this is why I think Peter was a powerful teacher. And it, that he presented it in such a way that people could actually apply it. Verse 33. <laughs> then, then for Mark is the best, the closest we get to a chapter break, right? Not and, not immediately. It's then, new story, new, new text. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? So we don't get the road story. We just get that they get to the house and he says, what were, you, what were you guys arguing about? You know, pretending he didn't know. But they kept silent for on the road, they disputed amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. And they sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. Which means there was a child handy. Like, I want to know who that kid was. Like, where'd the kid come from? And, or was the kid interested in hanging out with Jesus? So, I don't know, it's just a thought. And, he's, and he had taken him in his arms and he said to him, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You know who's probably getting the best crown this morning at church? Mandy, because she's taking care of the kids. She's missing out on the teaching of the word so she can bless these kids with the teaching of the word. And so you get this sense of how Jesus looks at it. Do you want the best? And, and, and first of all, let me point this out. They keep silent. They are still learning when to do things. And keeping silent didn't mean that God didn't start this conversation. In the past, the disciples have always initiated the conversation and Jesus had to correct them. This time, Jesus initiates the conversation and he's still correcting them. Jesus will help to correct his followers along the way, regardless of whether or not we're comfortable with his lead. So let me point this out too. It says in verse 35, just a couple things. It says he sat down. That's a key phrase that with Jews in the first century and even Romans, when a teacher was going to teach, they would sit down. So even in synagogue, they would stand for the reading of the word and for song. But then when it was time for the teaching to start, the rabbi would sit in the throne or the seat or whatever they called it. And they would sit down and then start the teaching. So when it says he sat down, he's initiating teaching mode and they initiate learner mode. And so that's a, a key thing. Then he repeats this idea of the first being the first and the last. Um, oh, I just got so many notes on this part. I love this. For the Roman audience, and this is being written in Rome, Roman belief systems were that you, the goal of humanity was to dominate as much as you could of your own life. Have control over everything. In fact, when you had an employee, they had to call you dominus, which is the root word of dominion. So Romans believed that so deeply that the successful human being was somebody who dominated other human beings to the point of abuse. So Roman soldiers acted that way, prefects acted that way, politicians acted that way. Even slaves would try to dominate other slaves. Everything was about the pecking order. And frankly, in Western civilization, we haven't abandoned that very much. 
So there's a, a presence here of that. So anybody who desires to be first shall be last and servant of all is in the face of the Roman reader. A Roman disposition would pop up here and everything changes. Now here's the thing. For the Roman reader, they just saw Jesus be magnified through the transfiguration as the most powerful being on the planet. And then he teaches this immediately afterwards. You want to be the strongest? You got to be the weak. Who's the strongest in the kingdom of God? Jesus is. How does he manifest that? By serving people. He just cast out a demon. Romans would celebrate this idea that their system is broken and to become a believer for a Roman was to reject that old system of Rome. To become a believer as a Jew is to reject the old system of the synagogue. To become a believer as an American is to reject materialism and the system that our culture is trying to teach us. In fact, to become a Christian in any worldly culture is to reject that culture and choose Jesus. To be set apart into a new kingdom. So that idea of desiring to be first, notice that there's no rebuke against that. And I think this is kind of interesting. If anyone desires to be first, then he gives instructions on how to do it. It's not a bad thing, and I think God put it in our heart to try to achieve, to try to pursue excellence. If we're going to run a race, Paul tells us to run it like, like we're going to win. Practice for it. Engage with it. And I think that we're at our best as humans when we desire to be first at things. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to pursue this with my whole heart, mind, and soul. God asks us to do that all over the place. Jesus just says there's a different way to do it than what your flesh says. To do it, you don't have to step on other people. You need to serve those people. And you become valuable in their eyes when you provide them a service or you do something for them that's a blessing. And I think that's part of the church as we see that all the time. Look around in the church. Who, who are the greatest in the church? People that serve the most. Because the most people in the room say, that person's a blessing in my life. So we talk like that. What you just did, that was a blessing to me. You made my day better. Thank you. And, and we, we start to do the idea of trying to bless others as a way to live. Then he takes his kid into his arms. Normal kids don't let strangers grab them and hold them without squirming a lot. This kid knew Jesus or felt the power of and the love of Jesus instantly. That's awesome. So either Jesus had spent time with this kid in the past to where the kid knew who he was, which is why he's hanging around. He's like Hendrix, just waiting for that attention off to the side, right? And when Jesus turns to him, the kid's like right there snuggling with him, intimate, connected. I love this. And then Jesus gives this next teaching. Whoever receives, first of all, that's an open invitation to everyone and kids love attention. You take some time, get yourself down to their eye level and start talking to a kid, they'll remember you forever. Like they'll be 40-year-olds and go, I remember that goofy-looking person at church when I was a little kid, right? And so Steph still remembers her Sunday school teacher from when she was a little kid. Many adults still need the attention just like kids do, so we give attention to other adults too. We have new believers that show up, they need attention, they, don't, they can't be sitting in the corner on their own. So you look for people in the church that can see that and address it as quick as possible. I'm super blessed because we got a room full of people that do that. You know how powerful and rare that is? We actually look for each other's needs. It's just amazing. Whoever receives, it's, it's an open invitation. The word receives in the Greek is dakome, which means to take somebody by the hand. You don't receive people unless you're willing to accept and bear and endure what they endure with them alongside them. 
to be their friend. So when we look at ministry, there should be something in our heart that wants to take that person's hand and walk through life with them, which means we make lifetime relationships. We don't just greet them at the door and push them into their seat, and when they're done, show them where their car is parked. That is not what God's talking. That's not receiving somebody. It's not at all what Mark's talking about. It's to take someone by the hand. Children to the Romans didn't earn money, so they were property. They were worthless human beings. Romans would trade kids, sell kids, breed them to be populating a slave market. The Roman Empire was cruel with kids. So again, Jesus challenges that idea. He says to do it in my name. I want to make this point too, because it's come up in a few of our conversations. If we love people without doing it in Jesus's name, we're no better than the rest of the world. The rest of the world knows how to be nice. So when we're just being nice and we don't do it in the name of Jesus, we don't tell people, I'm doing this because Jesus loved me first and I love you because Jesus loved me. We never vocalize that. We're not doing it in his name. When an ambassador comes into town, they say, I am here on behalf of King Jesus. And we're called ambassadors. Everyone that knows us should know who we represent. That's hard to do, but you will find out very quick who the scribes are, who the disciples are, who the desperate dads are. Announce who you are when you meet people, when you work with people. I represent Jesus. That's a bold thing to say, especially if you're not. (laughs) You know, make sure you are. Everyone who does this in my name receives me. This is what God wants the disciples to be doing. You don't need to build tents. You don't need to conquer the storms. You don't need to produce magic loaves out of baskets. You just need to receive and love people. Step five, serve people. Verse 37, in his name, verse 41. How, how, can, how can service to other people build a movement? How does that even work? If we all become slaves of each other and we all just help each other and serve each other, how do we get anywhere? Well, that's a flesh question, right? We don't have to get anywhere. Don't we need leaders? Don't we need rankings? Sean, you're teaching a lesson right now. Aren't you better than us? No. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's only one who's better, and that's Jesus. Period. Don't trust me that much, because I'm a sinner too. Test everything I teach from the Word of God. Correct me and rebuke me when I'm wrong. Please. Don't we need visionaries in the church who got a plan? Nope, we don't. Don't we need people to direct us, to manage us, to organize? Nope, we don't need that. That's what the world thinks we need. We don't need that. And and it works great to just have a world in which everyone's a servant and, and otherwise the alternative is everybody's a boss. And that's ugly. It gets ugly really quick because then it's all about who's getting one up on each other. You know, just go to a secular workplace. Ah, go to a Christian workplace. You'll see it there too. It's, the, it's what we do in the flesh. We're always trying to get up on each other. What we need is greeters, receivers, kid huggers, children's ministry. We need admonishers, teachers, rebukers. We need encouragers. We need somebody who recognizes blessing. We need people that see in the spirit and can tell people what they see. We need prophets. We need preachers. We don't need bosses. We need servants. And that God says, I'll start a movement with that. You don't have to start a movement with that. And God changes the world through this philosophy. Honestly, there's no greater impact on human history than Jesus Christ. Even today, 2,000 years later, this kid born in a manger makes that much impact on human history. But Jesus said, (laughs) 
but is in contrast to what was just spoken. But Jesus said, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle. Oh, wait, did I skip a page? Yep, I did. Verse 38. Now John answered him and said, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name and we forbid him because he does not follow us. It's like they didn't hear what he just said. This has to be frustrating for Jesus. We don't, we need everybody to be servants and love the kids. And then you get John, and maybe this is again why Peter, James, and John went up to the hill. This is kind of a thing where John's, if they don't follow us, then he's talking in ranking orders. He's speaking like a Roman. They don't follow us. They didn't have permission from us, so they can't go do their thing. Wrong. In the kingdom, if God tells you to do something, you do it. If it doesn't fit with the fellowship that you're in, go find a fellowship where it does fit. God calls people. So he asks this question. They forbade him. Can you imagine the disciples ran up and said, you can't be doing that in the name of Jesus. This is exactly what the scribes were doing to them. And they just turn around and do it to other people. This is just amazing. But Jesus said, so Jesus speaking in contrast to that, don't forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It works the other direction too. When people know that you're a believer and then they bless you and they do it as a believer, they're getting rewards in heaven. How simple is that? Well, Lord, I, I, I want to do the best I can for you. Then give people a cup of water when they show up and they're thirsty. Hey, can I get you something to drink? Have you ever heard people say that when you come over to their house? Can I get you something to drink? You know, it's like we put so much weight on ourselves and Jesus doesn't teach that. So they, when it says they didn't follow us, that's an interesting statement because who are they supposed to follow, the disciples or Jesus? They still have it wrong a little bit. They're still figuring it out. This isn't about their salvation. I want to point that out. This is about their maturity in Christ. Jesus loves them. He's, he's asked them to follow him. He's teaching them patiently. So this mistaking language that they're using is simply correction towards maturity. They freed a man from demons. Um, Jesus had that freed man from demons. Remember earlier in Mark, he told him to go back to his hometown. What do you think that guy was doing back in his hometown? See, he wasn't with the disciples. Jesus sent out 70 people in Luke 10, not 12. What, what happened to the other 58 of those people? Where are they at? What are they doing right now? We don't get their record, but they're probably speaking the name of Jesus. John the Baptist's followers were told to go preach Jesus. But as far as we know, is Andrew is maybe the only one that was a follower of John the Baptist? What happened to all of those hundreds of followers? They're out there preaching in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name was public multitudes were coming to see him. And that wasn't just because of these 12. I think this is a humble thing that I got to understand too. God's kingdom is much bigger than us. And if we aren't doing something, it doesn't mean it's not getting done. And we don't have to give permission. We don't have to argue with other Christian groups. We really don't. If they're doing things in the name of Jesus and it's working for them, great. Amen to that. Go for it. We're still doing what we're called to do. So this idea that they see this happen immediately after this other situation. Um, for whoever is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, will by no means lose his reward. Giving water is the simplest of hospitality tasks. God doesn't need miracles. 
He needs people to offer water. I just, the way he brings it back down is so wonderful. So he was not against us. There were people that were against the teaching of Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were flat out against them. So when he says this, he's talking about those people that are against them actively come out and try to stop what they're doing. Now, it doesn't say that we have to ignore that, right? He's saying when they're not actively coming out trying to stop us, then we can simply move forward and accept that whatever they're doing, they're probably speaking well of Jesus, and that's the goal. So we don't have to have boss people over each other. So really continuing from the last point. Then he talks about reward, and I like this. Because if I got to give up my life in order to save it, now he's talking about a reward. There is a trade there. And I think this is great. If you believe, if you've declared Jesus via baptism and you belong to Jesus, your salvation is coming. You don't have to worry about it. There's just a reward that's coming that you need to be thinking about too. And you don't have to worry about other people to get your own reward. So the trade is, is necess not necessarily connected to each other. The same, in the same thread, he reframes competition to little ones. I just like this. It helps to not be competitive with other people. It helps to not get into that. So don't think about who gets what reward, who's going to be better off or not better off. Your rewards are assured, and Jesus just told us, you're doing fine, and you're on your way to heaven. And he shifts the focus from them I think to the disciples in the next verse, verse 42. So instead of talking about these other people that are doing something over here, he then points them back at themselves. It's about service, you guys. Verse 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for to him to have a millstone hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Don't mess with the job God's told us to do. The millstone, there's, they have two words for millstone in the Greek. One is the millstone that you do like a mortar and you grind it in your hand. That's not this word. This word's the millstone that's room-sized and you have it in a water mill or a windmill. It's that massive stone. So the, the contrast of a millstone hung around your neck, the millstone, the word for this millstone would be bigger than the human. It's not like putting on a necklace. It's just, and so, and then you get thrown into the sea. You drop to the bottom of that sea quicker than you'd be able to even take your breath before you went in the water. You'd absolutely rock it to the bottom. It's definitely not forbidding people to do things in the name of Jesus. He instead warns them, take care of the people that are in the room with you. Take care of the kids. So stumbling others then, it is implied that when you stumble others, it's that you don't show hospitality. You don't take care of people. Veteran believers can engage in the finer points of this. I think this is a great discussion as to what that looks like. Um... It's, it doesn't necessarily matter what other people are doing. Then you get to this rebuke. And people would say Jesus doesn't talk about hell, didn't read this passage. And this is a tough passage for people, but it's after a series of nuanced, tough passages for mature believers to hear. Then he gets to this point in contrast to them being upset about other people and worrying who's in charge and who's the greatest. That's all the same teaching that we get to verse 43 and these admonitions, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than to have two hands, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than to having two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hellfire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a warning of hell. He gives this warning. He comes down from the mountaintop, sees humans bickering about who gets to do the healing. None of them can do anything without God. And he tells them, it's prayer and fasting, you guys. And then they're arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to be the best. If Jesus is in charge, I want to be number two. No, no, no. If you want to be the best, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people with a servant's heart, people that just take care of each other. It's soup day today. Who made soup? And he's looking for people that help and do things. It's a beautiful thought. And then he says, you guys got some things, and if they're causing you to sin, you got to just get rid of them. And he's speaking as he has through all of Mark. He gives practical, like, physical parables about spiritual ideas. This is why we don't have a bunch of one-eyed, one-hand, one-foot Christians. Right? He's not, your foot doesn't cause you to sin. He's already taught that. It's what comes out of your heart that causes you to sin. Your eyeball doesn't cause you to sin, but you sure use it that way sometimes. When you covet things. He's giving us a warning that we have to be more worried about ourselves than what those other people are doing over there. And ourself is plenty of things to worry about. He does, this almost sounds like a song lyrics because it's repeated three times. I, I, you got the rhythm of this passage. Three times, is, this is absolute and complete. The emphasis on this would have been so strong as an ancient writing. This is what to think about. Worry about your own salvation in fear and trembling and fight sin like it matters. You don't dabble with sin. You don't just have a, you know, a breakdown once in a while willfully. You fight it. You have a breakdown. You get up the next day. You keep fighting it. You run the race like you're going to win. If you desire to be first, tell you what, fight sin in your life and take it seriously. It will wreck you. It will destroy your fruit. It will, it will mar your spiritual life. You have to deal with it. The point here is easily understood in context of all of this. I'm going to give some examples because I was trying to think, what are some things that we like to bicker about as a church, a big church, like the church of Jesus across the planet, that really don't matter? And, and, and then apply the passages from 43 through 40, 48. When do we get baptized? Do we do infant baptism? Do we do baptism when we get saved? Do we do it the day after we get saved? Or do we schedule it and do it a year later? Or do we get baptized every time we fall into sin? And we just get like multi, like baptisms every Sunday, everybody. Across the church of Jesus Christ, those, those have all been options that people have chosen. Here's Jesus' advice. If that's causing you to bicker with one another like the scribes, cut it off. Like, it's better to get into heaven than bicker about baptism practices, right? How about confessionals? Should we confess to a priest? Should we confess to one another? Should we just confess privately to God? God's people have done all three of those things. 
If it's causing you to bicker and argue with each other, it's better to just cut that off and not worry about it than to go into hell as bickering and arguing about God's people. Think about what he's talking about and the context he's talking about it. You know, they're, well, who gets to, they're doing this in our name and they're doing this and we couldn't cast out the demons and they were saying this and the scribes were telling us and Jesus just like, cut it off. Literally, cut it off. Cut it out. And it's, I think, where we get that phrase. Cut it out. Stop it. If it causes you to sin or stumble or get other people to stumble, stop doing it. Raising hands in worship, standing or sitting, kneeling to pray, having your pastor stand or sit while they talk. What kind of podium we use, if we use rows or if we use chairs, if we have little kneeling pads on our, on our things, if we have bouncy trampoline things going down the aisle of our church. Here's theological examples, Calvinism, Arminianism, emotivism, speaking in tongues, evangelistic methods and how to do it. Man, all of it. What does a non-believer think when they see us bickering about such things? Let's do things in the name of Jesus and give them a cup of water. Let's start with that. And if these things cause people to stumble, just set them to the side or talk about them with other believers that want to talk to you about those things. And I'm one of them. I, I like getting into all of that stuff. If it causes people to sin, stop it. The immediate example of bickering between believers is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Stop it. What do we believe in? I'm just going to give some principles on that because if those are all things we don't get into, here are things we get into. If it's clearly defined in the Old Testament, spoken of by Jesus, reinforced by the disciples in the epistles, and we see fruit in the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day -day lives, we stand on that stuff. If it's in the Word of God and we see how it works, we do it. No questions. That's a really, I think that's a super clear line to draw. And I don't really care when we baptize you. Let's just do it and get it done. Pruning things is not a loss. And when you take care of an apple tree and you prune off the dead branches, that's not a loss to the tree. It helps the nourishment go to the right places. And as a church, if we can cut out the things that don't matter and put all of our energy and resources into things that do matter, that's healthy for the tree. It's called pruning. Jesus uses it as an example. You take the dead stuff and you prune it off. And you take the living stuff and you let the nourishment go to those things. This is awesome. On the positive side of that coin, we do what's clearly outlined, confirmed, and bears fruit. On the negative side, we don't do the things that are dead and bickering and cause division and people to stumble. Super clear line. Help us to have eyes to see that line and ears to hear it and a heart that loves it. Like we love that God set it up this way. He keeps using the phrase where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Just a thought with triple emphasis. We should know what that means. He's talking about going to hell and the word there is in the Greek and the Hebrew. The, he the Greeks stole the word in the Hebrew. And the word is Gehenna, or anything from the valley of Hinnom, which is just a little valley south of Jerusalem. And the reason it was a neat place is it's kind of a sharp valley, so you could dump things in it, and everything kind of stayed there. And when you dump stuff and they compost, they go up about 40 degrees. So if you start a compost pile in your backyard where you throw the decaying dead stuff, Worms will come up out of the ground and start to eat it, and then they pass gas. And literally, if you dig into the side of that mound on a 70-degree day, the inside of that mound will be 120 degrees. It's forever smoking, and it's forever filled with worms. Just keep putting dead stuff on top of the pile. That's Gehenna. 
So this reference that he's making is on the south side of Jerusalem as they're walking towards Jerusalem. Historically, when Jerusalem gets into idol worship, they would sacrifice human bodies and they would throw them in the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, and they would be sacrificed to Molech. And then they would light fires and the oils of the dead body would keep the fires lit. So anytime you look down to Gehenna, there was flames coming up and smoke burning and worms eating the bodies. It's disgusting. It's an image of false worship. Like, who's going to be in charge? It's false worship. In the first century then, this for the Jews, this became a cursed dumping ground. Gehenna was just this right outside the walls of Jerusalem. Like, when we go to Israel, you'll see how close this valley is. If you are on that side of town, you could probably smell it on a bad day. The fires then of the oils and the rubbish, it's the same word that gets used in Revelation 10 for hell. This is hell. You want, an exa- you want a, a good example of heaven? Come to church on a Sunday, a healthy church. You want a good example of hell? Look outside the walls at what that looks like. Just decaying, dead, rotting junk. So when we give things up as a believer, it's again, I'm, I'm saying it wrong because I'm saying it like the world. People think that as Christians we give things up. I don't give things up. I prune them off, I cut them, I get rid of them, and I'm better for it. It's not that as a Christian we sacrifice the things of the world. It's that we purge the things of the world because we want nothing to do with them. I don't want dead stuff around and worms and fire. I'm going to throw that outside the walls. Clear commentary on the eternal. The disciples are worried about the temporal. Jesus says worry about the spiritual. If it's worth anything, it's worth our lives to go to heaven. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 35. Just to avoid hell. And it's not just the reward. Sometimes thinking of hell is the reason we are doing what we're doing. But let me say it this way too. If heaven is worth every anything at all, it's worth all of our lives. So to follow Jesus is to gain the glory of heaven. It's both. To follow Jesus is to avoid the nastiness of this world and hell. And to follow Jesus is to get the glory of God, the shiny, clean, white clothes. And purity becomes something that's beautiful. In the heart of the believer, we have to make that transition after we choose to follow Jesus. To not want what the world has and to desire what God has instead. And we pray for that to happen. Verse 49. For everyone who will be, will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have, you, have, have salt in yourselves and peace with one another. That's it. Have salt. I like the idea of being salty. Your value doesn't come from being in charge of other people. Your value doesn't come from being ranked higher. Your value comes as you serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ. To be seasoned with fire, he's talking about a purifying fire there, a testing, a weighing. Uh, When you would purify metal, you heat it up to the point that the impurities burn off. So God will do that to you. He'll heat up your life to the point that the impurities burn off. And if we see it that way, it changes the nature of trials and testing entirely. Every sacrifice, anything we give to God, God's going to see that as a sacrifice and a blessing. This is the new new covenant with humanity. We don't have to bring it down to the temple in some physical form. We just give it to God spiritually. And then it's seasoned with salt. This is a great reference. Um, We know that salt's a preservative. It's good for keeping meat. And if we're living meat sacks, we should probably have some salt on us so we don't go rotten and wormy. 
Um, but there's this idea too that salt being good, he's actually referencing something in Leviticus, Leviticus 2 verse 13. Every sacrifice, every oblation of thy meat offering <laughs> shall in thou season with salt. I think I used the King James on this. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from any meat offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So it was required. Every meat offering given to God had to be salted. God didn't want it without the salt. And now he's talking about avoiding the wormy, fiery pit. So there's this idea that if you are a meat bag walking around on earth, you should be salted. You shouldn't be thrown into Gehenna and be rotten. Meat can be really stinky or it can be really tasty. And if it's preserved right, I want the tasty. And I think that's a great way for God to explain it to our human brains. Wouldn't you rather have the bacon than the rotten vulture meat on the side of the road? Like there's a, you know, that's not chicken over there. That's disgusting. You know, meat gets maggots in it. They used to think that it produced maggots, but it's just that flies find it and they put their eggs in it because they love to put their eggs in it. And Satan's the same way. He loves to come corrupt us and put those eggs in there that turn into maggots. And, and they're hidden for a while, but then they grow into one of the most disgusting things ever. Stop trying to worry about what other people are doing. Stop bickering with the scribes. Stop, stop doubting that God has a plan for your life. Stop it. And then this other thing, if the salt loses its flavor, we can't produce value in ourselves. We can't. We, if so, we lose that flavor, we can't make it happen again. Only God can do that. How will you season it? It's a rhetorical question. The reality is we can't season ourselves. We have to let God do that in our life. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. He connects it back. Just be at peace with each other. You humans just love to bicker. Stop it. And, and you'll find that life gets better. So I'll summarize and we'll wrap up. I just, this idea of following the Lord, ending with this tending to yourself idea, and we keep coming back to this throughout the scriptures. At the, in chapter three, they learned to follow Jesus, win. Chapter four and five, they learned to listen and, and, and learn from Jesus through the word of God. Jesus would speak, they would listen. Then they learned to help people, even when it meant that they had to go to hardship. Then they learned that their weakness is now going to be fixed with prayer and fasting, this chapter. They become disciplined disciples. It's like a, a redundant. Verse 37, they learn to serve other people. Verse 41, they learn to do it in his name. Ver and then we get to this very last idea of the salt. Tend to yourself and stay salty. Oh, wow, God, could you make it any easier for us? And the only thing that screws up the simplicity of this is me. Either because I'm a horrible teacher or because I got flesh that I got to deal with. I got to keep it salty. What salts it? And a lot of people look that as an image of the word of God. That's why we meet one every seven days. That's why we think, okay, how do we fit in more Bible studies? Because I want, I, want I want to be as tasty as possible for God. I don't want to stumble people. Be roadkill on the road. I want that cleared out. I want to be out of there. Amen? That's Peter's guide to how to please God. Tend to yourself. Do what you're called to do. Serve the people around you. Be in prayer and fasting. Help people. Listen and learn from the word of God. And follow Jesus when he calls you. Amen. I just, I can't think of a better message to, 
soak in for a week than that. Thank you, Mark. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you showed us through story, through examples. You didn't just say it. You actually showed us what it looked like. Lord, we just thank you for the disciples. Their, Their mistakes are there for us to learn from. And we know that the word of God works like that. So we thank you for their willingness to write it down. Um, Thank you for Peter's humility. Thank you for Mark's willingness to serve and help write down what Peter would teach. Thank you. Lord, we know that we're going to be with someday in heaven and we'll get to talk like you did with Moses and Elijah. Lord, I can't wait to have dinner with Mark and Peter. I can't wait to talk about what they wrote. Lord, I can't wait to be in heaven with each person in this room and spend days and weeks just soaking in what your word and your glory and your majesty. Lord, I can't wait to sing your praises and go to the the heavenly choirs of angels to hear it get done. I can't wait to be in prayer, Lord, and, and, and to be able to do it face to face. Lord, please accept our humble offerings. Help us to love one another. Help us to love the kids. Help us to do the least amount for the least people so that we can serve them and humble ourselves before you. Help us to do everything in your name. Lord, there's so much from this chapter, Lord. I pray that things stick in our head all week and that your Holy Spirit changes us and teaches us your way and not our way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.